I think it would be fairly said that the world can be divided into two groups of people. People who follow instructions and people who mess things up. I think, I think that's a fair division. As an engineer, I just am tempted to believe all the time that if somebody's taken the trouble to write out a set of instructions, it's because they understand better how to use their product than I do, and they know better how to produce the best results. And so I am a, I'm in a rule, I'm an instruction follower, except when it comes to laundry. I like laundry instructions on the tag when they're written out in words. I don't, I don't understand, you know, those symbols and what they all mean. But if, if you can write out the instructions plainly in words, that, that helps me. I, I found a, a garment with a laundry tag on it that I think was super helpful, super clear laundry instructions. This is what it said. For best results, machine wash cold, tumble dry low, never iron design. For worst results, drag through puddle behind car, blow dry on roof rack. See, <laughs> that's a helpful set of instructions. I know how to launder that garment. I, I like it when they, when they give instructions for things you haven't even thought of. I saw one garment, it said, cold wash only, don't tumble dry, don't iron print, don't slap pandas. <laughs> that is an excellent piece of advice. I have never slapped a panda while I'm doing laundry. Um, I find the most helpful laundry labels give you some tips on actually how to use the garment even. One of them that I saw said, machine wash cold. It's never so hot that you have to take you off your shirt. Don't be that guy. <laughs> Fair enough, I won't be that guy. I think for all of our sakes, I won't be that guy. Um, I saw one that gave a really good set of instructions. It said washing instructions, machine wash cold, do not bleach, turn inside out, no softeners, life instructions, lawyer up, delete Facebook, hit the gym. I'm going to say at least two of those three pieces of advice are super solid and in specific circumstances, maybe all three are a good idea. But my favorite instructions are the simple ones. I like this one the best. Wash this when dirty, period. Wash this when dirty, I will do that. <laughs> so there's a point of instructions, especially in something like laundry, the point of the instructions is if you can follow these directions, you will get the best results out of your garment. That following the directions, the instructions, produces the best results. And unsurprisingly, that seems to be true in our spiritual lives as well. We're picking up the story out of the book of Exodus that we've been looking at this year. We're picking it up right at the moment where the movies leave off. God has used Moses to unleash 10 plagues of increasing severity on Pharaoh so that to compel Pharaoh to set Israel free from slavery in Egypt. And once Pharaoh does, God uses Moses to lead Israel to the shore of the Reed Sea and then God opens the waters and Israel passes through on dry land. And when Pharaoh's army tries to chase them, God closes the waters over top of them. And Israel is left standing on the far shore of the sea, free from, from slavery in Egypt forever, free to be God's people, free to go to the land that God has given them. 
And it's right at that moment that everything goes the opposite of the way that they thought it would. In Exodus 15, 22, it says, Then Moses had Israel leave the Reed Sea and go out into the sure desert. They traveled for three days in the desert and found no water. When they came to Marah, they couldn't drink Marah's water because it was bitter. Moses leads this triumphant community away from the sea and into the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, where God had told Moses to bring the people. And three days into their journey, they still hadn't found a drop of water. Now, you have to understand, physiologically, three days is about the maximum that human beings can go without hydration. You have to imagine the weariness and desperation that's settling in the community. Babies crying and moms panicking and, and the elderly are fainting and anger is rising throughout the community. And then they finally arrive at this place called Marah. And they see water and they go to drink it and they discover that it is undrinkable. And the community explodes in frustration. And some of you don't need to imagine what that frustration feels like. Because you've been waiting for God to show up and provide something. And you have been waiting longer than three days. You've been waiting about the maximum amount of time you feel like you can survive. Some of you have been waiting for work or for your financial situation to change. Some of you have been waiting for healing physically, mentally, emotionally. Some of you have been waiting for a relationship, waiting for kids, waiting for acceptance, waiting for this dang pandemic to end. And you know the heaviness and the bitterness that can settle in when it feels like, yeah, God maybe rescued me, but since that moment, Everything has been the opposite of what I thought it would be. Where is God? That's what Israel was feeling. It says in verse 24 that Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord pointed out a tree to him and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. They arrive at this place. The water's undrinkable. People are freaking out on Moses. Moses is freaking out on God. And God gives Moses one simple instruction. Take that branch and throw it in the water. Well, an instruction that makes no human sense. But Moses does exactly what God tells him to do. And the undrinkable water becomes fresh. And then it says in verse 27, they, camped, they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. From that place of Moses' obedience that led to Israel's abundance of water, God leads them to a place of 12 springs, more water than they knew what to do with, shade and the abundance of life, a place where they could stay and be filled and satisfied and refreshed. They met God in a new way. They learned who God was in a new way. It says in verse 26, God said, I am the Lord who heals you. 
They discovered the God who brings healing. They discovered, God said, I can be the God who takes the bitter things and makes it sweet, who takes the broken things and makes them whole, who makes the hurtful things and brings them healing, who makes the destructive things and creates life. I am the God who can bring healing into your experience. Now, what God doesn't promise is to be the God who makes all of our bad experiences go away, right? Even when they leave Elim, they will go back out into the wilderness where they will live for four decades. Their hardship doesn't go away. Life doesn't become perfect. But what they discover is that they, they, their God is a God who brings healing in the midst of the pain if they can live in a posture of obedience. It says in verse 25, the Lord made a regulation and a ruling there, and there he tested them. The Lord said, if you are careful to obey the Lord your God, to do what God thinks is right, to pay attention to God's commands, to keep all of God's regulations, then I won't bring on you any of the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians. God says, if you can live in a posture of obedience towards me, I will live in a posture of abundance towards you. It was in that place that God tested them. He said to Moses, will you obey an instruction that seems absurd? And because Moses did, they experienced the healing of the water. That was the test. God wasn't testing them in the sense that he was withholding water to see what they would do or that God wasn't testing them to see if they were worthy of water. He wasn't testing them to see if they'd fail to live up to his expectations or, you know, God, that's not the kind of test it was. The test was in these circumstances, would you be willing to respond with obedience to me. Because if so, I will respond with abundance towards you. What God was saying is that fundamental to us experiencing the life that God wants for us, a life of healing and hope and fullness and abundance, is a posture of obedience towards him. That our obedience to God leads to God's abundance to us. Obedience is our fundamental posture towards God, which I think, as basic as it sounds, can actually be kind of a shocking thing to think about because in the church these days, it feels like we have gotten away from the importance of obedience. I think sometimes we minimize the importance of obedience because we misunderstand grace, right? We say, well, I know that Jesus has forgiven me for all of my sin, and I know I'm going to be with Jesus in heaven one day in the future, and so it doesn't feel like it really matters how I behave now in the present. And it's far from the truth. In Romans chapter 6, the apostle Paul says, so what are we going to say? Should we continue sinning so that grace will multiply Absolutely not. Paul says, should we continue in sin because we know that grace has got it covered? 
No, live a life of obedience. I think sometimes we minimize the importance of obedience because we misunderstand what it means to be free from legalism. We know that in previous eras of the church history, we, were, we lived under this reign of religious rule-keeping and, and legalistic law-abiding, and we know that grace has set us free from all of that legalism. And we kind of swing the pendulum the other way and say, well, then I must be free to live however I want. Later in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, so what? Should we sin because we aren't under law but grace? Absolutely not. Paul says, "If is the opposite of legalism getting to live however you want? No, the opposite of legalism is obedience in love. God says that his fundamental posture towards us will be a posture of healing and obedience if our fundamental posture towards God will be an obedience of trust, a posture of trust and obedience. Obedience in all of the ways that the Bible calls us to obey which are all of the ways that we so often feel free to ignore. Obedience in the way the Bible calls us to love God with everything that we have more than we love everything that we have. An obedience that calls us to not slander or malign or gossip about other people. An obedience that reminds us to not steal, whether it's cable or movies or or credit for work we didn't do or cheating on taxes. We're called to obedience in the way that we respond to sexuality and lust, both in our minds and with our bodies, whether in porn or in sexual acts outside of marriage. We're called to obedience in the way that we choose to speak the truth in love instead of speaking falsehoods, in the way that we choose to not covet or crave things that aren't ours. God calls us to obedience in the way that we honor our parents, or if we are parents, the way that we don't exasperate our children. God calls us to obedience in the way that we are submissive to each other as spouses. God calls us to rejoice always, pray continually, and to give thanks for everything instead of grumbling and whining and complaining in bitterness. We're called to not worry, but to trust. We're called to not judge anyone ever for anything. We're called to not give up meeting together with our community of faith. We're called to practice Sabbath instead of workaholism. We're called to reconcile relationships, turn the other cheek, extend forgiveness. We're called to be welcoming to strangers and foreigners, to be hospitable to the forgotten and the ignored, to not exploit the poor, but to extend generosity, to love even our enemies. God calls us to obedience in all sorts of ways that we would prefer to not obey, especially when it's hard. And yet God says, I will posture myself in abundance towards you if you will posture yourself in obedience towards me. And that doesn't mean that if 
somehow God isn't fixing what's broken with your life right now, that you have sin in your life or you've been disobedient or you lack faith or something else. No, no, no. It just means that if you posture yourself in obedience, you can anticipate God to posture God's self in abundance because that's how Jesus lived. It says in Hebrews chapter 5, that although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. It's a funny phrase that Jesus learned obedience. It's not like he was bad at it at first and disobeyed, but he got better at it later. He learned as a human being how to be obedient even in the things that he suffered even in the times when it was hard. The writer of Hebrews seems to be thinking of the time when Jesus is crying out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's crucified, asking God to say, don't make me go through with the crucifixion, but, he says, if it's your will, if it's what you want, if these are your instructions, I will do it. And Jesus obeyed God even when it was hard, in anticipation that God would respond with abundance, which, of course, God did three days later in the resurrection. Jesus obeyed when it was hard, and God blessed him as the result. And then Jesus says to us, follow me. Do what I did. Choose obedience even when you don't want to even when it's hard, knowing that if your posture towards God is obedience, God's posture towards you is abundance. Jesus isn't just our role model. Jesus is the source of our obedience. The very next verse says, after Jesus had been made perfect in his death and resurrection, he became the source of eternal salvation for everyone who what? Who obeys him. It was because Jesus was willing to be obedient to death, even death on a cross, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God pours out his Holy Spirit on us to set us free. He set Israel, God set Israel free from slavery to Pharaoh. God sets us free from slavery to sin by the death and resurrection of Jesus. He pours out the Holy Spirit so that we can be set free from a life of sin in order to live a life of love. It is because of Jesus that we can posture ourselves towards God in obedience and experience God as the God who heals, the God who postures God's self towards us in abundance. That's how our life with Jesus works. He says, I've come that you would have life and have it in abundance. But how do we experience it? He says, this is the command I give you, love everyone else as much as you love me. It is as we posture ourselves in obedience that God postures God's self towards us in abundance. So here's the question. What are the obediences that you have been unchoosing in your life with God? Take a moment and reflect on that. 
What are the ways that you know the Bible is calling you to obedience, but you have decided that you are not able to posture yourselves towards God in obedience? Because here's the thing, friends. If you want to experience God as the one who heals, if you want to know God as the one who is postured in abundance, you have to respond to God as the one who is postured in obedience because through our obedience comes God's abundance. That's foundational to living a life of liberating obedience to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all of the ways that you've cared for us. I thank you for all of the ways we see you active in our lives. And God, as we now take a minute to reflect on our own life, would you help us to see with your eyes the obediences that you are inviting us into? And would you give us the strength and the courage by your spirit to lean into those obediences? And would you allow us, as a result, to experience your abundance in the life of Jesus, which overflows. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.